My name is Mary Conquest. I'm your host for Safety Labs by Slice, the podcast where we explore the human side of safety to support safety professionals. We move past regulations and reportables to talk about the core skills of safety leadership, empathy, influence, trust, rapport, in other words, the soft skills that help you do the hard stuff. Hi there. Welcome to Safety Labs by Slice. We've had lots of guests on the show who feel that formal safety education doesn't prepare tomorrow's safety professionals to work effectively in the workplace. Our guest has a different point of view. Today, I'll ask him about that and about the importance of learning and practicing civil discourse in the safety profession. Todd Lushin began his career as an OSHA compliance officer and consultant with Minnesota OSHA. His goal in the field was to improve worker success safety, and health and job satisfaction. Todd has dedicated his career to contributing to OHS as a profession, and after six years in the field, he chose to teach the next generation of safety professionals. He's an associate professor in the Department of Occupational and Environmental Health and Safety at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. Todd joins us from Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome. That was excellent. I can't believe you memorized all that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I memorized it all. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) So lots of people say that safety school does nothing to teach you about the real world. I'm simplifying a little bit, but, and that the real education starts once you're on the job and you have a bit of a different take on the role of formal safety education. Do you want to tell me about that? Yeah. And I'm going to relate it to my experience as a student too, that I understand people think, oh, I'm going to take these classes. And once I've completed those classes to a certain level of competency, I'll be awarded a degree. And then I am a changed person and I'm going to go out and practice. But what it really is, is the individual student practicing time management, practicing their learning technique, how to read and comprehend, take notes, review there are certain grading points in which they work up to, to in order to prove that those the skills they're developing are working. And I think that's why also a lot of university degrees require students to take courses outside of their discipline or their focus of study. So let's now take that to the next level, and that is practicing safety. That chemistry, you take chemistry, you take physics, a math class, obviously, before statistics, and you take a bunch of safety classes. And of course, they're it's interesting. I've looked at a lot of different curriculums for different degrees, and there's variances there, but they tend to have the same language, whether it's a combined in a course or separated out. And I know a lot of people view it as, well, as long as I'm exposed to, and I know certain tricks of the trade that come out of it, that I'll be okay. And that's not what it's about. It's the same as the example I gave when I went through and what I understand that it is about the time management. It's about problem solving which I feel is sort of the oversimplified version of scientific inquiry, that you're attempting to solve a problem and you're being given different scenarios, different situations, and you're developing those skills. Once you get onto the field, what you do is you're gaining, how did I practice that? How did I solve those problems? What was the limiting agent and what did I build? What were my reference points or my sources of information to start to understand a little things a little bit better. And then of course there is the trial and error. And I think that's what a degree is supposed to do is teach you problem solving. Now there are people who don't go to formal, get a formal degree and they are very successful in the field. Well, they may have a natural 
talent to problem solve. And so, yeah, they can be successful. Are they put through multiple or a series of trials and tribulations, which are your coursework and other things, in order to hone those skills to really understand? Because I do feel that being able to try something, fail and learn from it is really where true intelligence comes from. And when you really fully understand that path, that's where wisdom springs from. Does that kind of narrow what you'd wanted to hear me say from that question? Yeah. I mean, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that it's not necessarily about the content so much as it is about learning to learn, learning to inquire and think like critical thinking skills, that kind of thing. Exactly. And that's where I would draw a difference between different programs. And I know I've spoken to different you know, students from different universities and they, they've had complaints. And I know that some previous guests on your show have said, oh, they just taught me about the standards. It's like, but that's a reference point to build from. That's sort of the simulation from which you practice other things. But there are, if you're in a degree program where the only problem solving you're really being tested on is multiple choice, that's not really testing your ability to problem solve. There needs to be case studies there needs to be getting out into the field and trying things and you should be allowed to fail as well. You know, I know that I've seen some literature that shows that some people, hey, as long as they show up to class enough, they'll pass. There needs to be a minimum level of competency that's set by the professors, you know, as a group, not individually so much. And the student should be challenged to the point where it's almost uncomfortable. And but the faculty member or the professor should be there to recognize that and to tell them what they need to hear in order to get back on track. Saving for that, if you're just kind of tumbling through and surviving an exam or surviving a paper, whatever, you're not really developing those skills. And, but if you were to take those two programs or degree programs right next to each other, you'd be like, oh, they're covering the same things. But the student over here who's being challenged and forced to grow, forced to relook at things, forced to develop those skills, they're the ones who are probably going to come out and be a successful practitioner right away. Whereas the other group, there's no challenge there. And so it's all upon them. What did they walk away from other than just a you know piece of paper that acknowledges they completed the coursework? So that's the big difference is that it's not about what you know. It's about how you go about using what you know in your resources to better understand things. So because the information, I mean, in this day and age, information is everywhere. Insight and learning how to I guess, analyze or understand that information, That's there's a big difference there. Does that sound right? Or Definitely. And here's the other thing too, and this is, I think, this is something we're going to get into. And I was preparing for this by going on to LinkedIn and reading, and it's almost like taking poison a little at a time, you kind of become resistant to it. <laughs> but it's just interesting how so many people have to cut other people down in effort to say, well, no, it's this way, or I have a different viewpoint. We're all on a path to understanding. And some people get stuck or lost on that path to get to understanding. And it's the people who you believe something today. And then you hear what other people talk about. And you're like, oh, I can think about that. I understand from where you're coming from. And I see how it affects what my previous experiences or what I see in front of my face are. So let me try it too. And it may work and it may not. So a person who's continually attempting to understand and hear from others and try things out, they're the ones who are eventually going to get to that understanding. It's the people who are stuck or the people who feel that in order to feel like I'm right and I'm righteous, I have to put other people down. It's too common in this profession right now. And it, 
Obviously, it upsets me, but I'm not going to try to get too emotional about it. And I try not to engage in the sort of the pettiness of it when it comes to the comment section, what other people say. I understand people are just on different, there are different points of their career. There are different points of their journey. And when students get out of school, they're on a lower level, but they've walked the path. They were given some guidance and hopefully they'll continue on it. And even the, the faculty, the professors, they're still learning too, because they were trained on the sort of the pursuit of what I don't know, I don't know, which, you know, when you're in graduate school, once you really understand what that means, that really makes the path clear that you are very measured in what you say. You're very measured in how you proceed. You're very measured in, I can listen to someone's complete opposing viewpoint, but we can be civil about it so I can understand it from their perspective and we can both gain something from the experience. We're absolutely going to get into that. We're going to talk further about civil discourse, but I'm curious, like in this learning path, in the way it should be, in your view, what's the role of the professor or the instructor to guide people along? Like, what does guidance look like? I'd almost like it to like a Sherpa. They're there to protect. They allow the people to, to really test themselves, to go as far as they can. And if they deviate or they're tired or they're demotivated, they should be there to kind of pick them up and keep them moving. I'm going to give you references that a lot of your listeners are probably like, I'm too young to know this, but like in the, the Matrix, you know, the Oracle, it's like, oh, she told me this. It's like, she told you what you needed to know to make that next step. And everybody got different. She didn't teach everybody the same thing. It's what they needed to hear. My advisor in graduate school was amazing at that, that I'd be panicked about something because my lab mates were at a different point of their you know, dissertation or whatever it might be. And he was great at reeling me back in, refocusing me, and then I was motivated to keep going. And I really think that's the role. At the undergraduate level, it may be a little bit different because we've got a bigger group of people and there's not as much one-on-one as you would like. But I always try to make it make myself available to my students, even if it's a Saturday night, we can meet, you know, and I can talk through what their frustrations are. And I and I also think that's a skill set, too, is knowing when to ask for help. And I've actually had to train some students since post pandemic that complaining to me, blaming me for making you feel anxious or stressed is not the proper way to begin the, can you help me <laughs> question? <laughs> it's more or less, this is where I am. This is what I'm thinking, but I just can't get through this point. Let's move forward. And then I'm happy to help. It's the ones who go here, fix this for me that it's like, no, that's not what this is about. And I think that's what students need to understand that sometimes you didn't put in enough time. Sometimes the faculty member was speaking at a level that didn't meet your frequency. You got to go talk to them to alleviate what that difference is. And then you can move forward because it really is. If you take your classes at the experience to develop your learning technique, and that, again, time management, your ability to take notes, synthesize those notes, make an understanding of it, prepare for whatever the test might be, whether it's an exam, paper presentation, case study project, whatever it might be, the more time you put into understanding what it needs to be or look like, the more successful you're going to be. Yes. <laughs> Ergo, yeah, if we have the procrastinators, I can smell them. They wait till the night before. I can tell. Yeah. I can tell that yeah. they didn't go through the thought process. So that's the path. That's the path they should be on. And when they graduate, they should have a level of confidence that wherever they get hired, their new boss, their new person that they're reporting to, that is their new Sherpa. That's their new guide. But it's within a smaller context. So it's not fully about them learning now. Now they're actually providing value, which they've been practicing all along. And But the value was mostly to their skill set and their knowledge. Do you think that there's 
an ideal balance between technical, and here I'm talking more knowledge content, and interpersonal skills in safety education? And and if there is, what would that look like? (laughs) Okay, that's the million dollar question. Yes, there is. There definitely is. And the problem is we're because of our, you know, how we grew up and who our parents were and our experiences, that is how our ability to communicate and relate to others. A lot of people call it the soft skills, right? You almost have to experience a lot of things. And that's where complete, you know, 100% online learning without any interaction, it doesn't provide those abilities to try to ask somebody a question, inquire about something, and realize that you're actually driving people away. And that's where I like to bring students out to companies. And I don't like to make them uncomfortable, but I understand that putting them in a position that is uncomfortable challenges them. And then they have to dig down deep, you know, and allow Mm -hmm. them to make mistakes and then tell them what they did wrong and why it was. How else are you supposed to learn it? I couldn't imagine someone not being given that opportunity, then go to a workplace and start writing emails. I know exactly what to do here. Do this OSHA thing. Going to workers, thou must do this. You're going to be kicked out of there really soon. You're not going to be successful. I mean, I've been practicing right now, you know, for the last seven months. And I had an injured worker who was reported first aid. So I went found her and I asked about it. And I said, are you all right? You know, are you taking care of it? I said, I'm sorry that happened to you. If there's any change in condition, please let me know. And I do that with each touch point that somebody gets somewhat injured a question. And today it's extremely hot here. We survived over hundred degree heat load within our plant. We don't have air conditioning in our plant. So I've been bringing around coolers of ice water so they can dip in their cooling cloths and put it around their neck and going around handing out electrolyte popsicles, things like that. And a worker came up, she goes, I just want you to know, we really appreciate what you're doing for us. And I'm sorry, that is more important to me than the incidence rates or anything else. Because I also know that that gives me some leverage on reciprocity. That if I ask them, hey, would you share more? It's working. And that is the social side. There's nothing technical about what I'm doing. It's just getting out there and getting to know people. You know, safety is an attribute of work. The workers are doing the work. Therefore, we have to understand how safety influences the way they do things, how they view things. And the only way to do that, the only way is to build relationships with them. Of course, you know, we have to also attend to all the other responsibilities we have with management and forecasting and say, oh, yes, of course. But getting that on the floor and hearing what the workers are saying and, and getting them to come to you to ask questions, I'm bringing those very gently and very structured to the managers and then we're solving problems. And now the workers are coming to me and going, I've been asking for this to be, you know, corrected for 10 years. And here, what did you do? I brought what you had said, you know, and put it in a language or in a context that they would understand. And yes, they did. You know, so I'm giving you examples of the way I do it. But again, I try to be an example, first of all, almost a role model for the students when we go out to places. But more importantly, there is a time in which I have to step back and go, do it, try it. And if they aren't, it's okay. It's a safe environment. It's a project. And the site manager, the site supervisor, whoever my friend is, who's hosting the host, that's the better term for it. They're there to observe as well and provide feedback. And I want honest feedback, not, oh, you're doing a great job, but here's where you could have done better. And everybody should hear that and not in a critical putting them down way, but in a, you can get better way, which, you know, that's how they should be practicing too. Nobody's really trying to do anything wrong, but 
there's potential for improvement. And that's what you want to tap into. Okay. I went really on different tangents there. What do we talk about again? What's the proper breakdown? I'll start at 50, 50. And then depending on the individual's current state of knowledge, skills, and abilities, you have to then customize. And I mean, that as a good instructor can recognize that and will spend more time on the technical things with the ones who need it. So more time on the social things who need it. And again, it's more, it, it's communication relations, not really. And that encompasses social. Yeah. And I mean, it's not as though everyone comes as, as tabla rasa. Like we're not all the same person when we arrive in any kind of degree program. Are you seeing any shifts or trends in the way that students approach learning? Like in your time teaching, has anything, and I mean, within that time has been the pandemic, which is a huge interruption for many things. Yeah, I see a clear connection to what I've seen in the change in like the high school level, you know, that the testing is so important. You know, they got to score really well in the tests and teaching to the test. That does not prepare students for college. It doesn't, you know, they're, you don't have to read something and enjoy it and reflect on it and then relate it to other things, you know, in your life. And that, that builds knowledge, but then the, the process you went by to read, have that discipline to read and set time aside to do it, to take your own notes, to really think about it wherever you are. That's what we need in college. But when those types of learners who are consumers in many ways, a consumer learner comes to a university, they're expecting to be spoon-fed. And simply by accepting the spoon-fed information, I have accomplished what you need, right? No, no. We want you to write a paper. Well, what do you want it to say? I want you <laughs> to read this book and I want you to tell me what you get out of it. And they're just, what? And so because that's been such a, that's more common than in the exception, I think the individuals, the professors at the lower level, again, I'm, oh, I hope I'm not making anybody mad, but I think some of them have just been like, you know what? I can't fight this tide. I'm just going to go with it. And I'm seeing some students get to me and they just... They don't have the wherewithal to, okay, I've got a paper due in four weeks. What's my schedule? What does the professor really expect? Not the night before it's due, but at the point in which it's assigned. And you can tell which students have gone through that process because they have a draft. They're asking me specific questions about layout and everything. I'm like, wow, this is going to be a pleasure to read. And then I've got other students going, oh, I forgot it's due tomorrow. I'm like, oh boy. That's going to be a fun one to read if they're just going to regurgitate whatever comes out at, you know, 1155 and then they'll turn it in and you can see it. I could almost predict based on what the students say and do in class, where they're, where they're going to be on that curve. And if I see an outlier deficiency there, a difference in what I expect, I'll go talk to the individual and find out because some students don't have to go through all that process and they provide an excellent product. And I see a real talent there, but I want them to know, just like Michael Jordan practiced a lot, just because your talent doesn't mean you, you know you don't have to put in the work and the effort and demonstrate. But then the ones who are really smart, but they don't do it, I find that it is they have a certain level of anxiety that prevents them from, you know, really telling their story versus they're trying to tell the story they think I want to hear without fully vetting. <laughs> that means, and I've had students have a lot. I've had a lot of students have breakthroughs. And that's where a professor shouldn't say, okay, this one paper is worth half your grade. Yikes. That's right there. So there should be a, a smaller one and then a little bit bigger one. It should build up to a much bigger product, but you give them a chance to 
fail safe. And I know that's a Todd Coughlin euphemism. So that that's really where things are right now that I'm finding and we're finding that where we could assume a minimum level of technical expertise. And I, I'm, I'm including using hand tools. You know, we used to assume they could all do that stuff or use a ladder, things like that. We have to build more of those basics or assume knowledge into it. And we also need to be very careful with not assuming that they are comfortable with writing a paper or that if we assign reading a few chapters, that they will do it. We have to put in additional assessment tools or checkpoints to ensure that they are. The only reason I use quizzes and any future students of mine who are you know listening to this, I only use quizzes to make sure they're actually doing the assigned readings. That's it. And it's very, very low contribution to grade, but it's just, I expect you guys to read and I can tell who's not because the questions are not just something you can Google or have chat GT or whatever it's called, put it out there. It's actual thing like interpretation of, okay, you know, in this chapter, they talked about this, but how would you apply it to the situation? So it's, it takes like, okay, you did consume it versus just, I can search the text for the answer. Okay, so let's swing around or circle back, as they say, to we had talked a little bit about the idea of civil discourse. So the last time we spoke, you told me safety is a team sport. There's no podium. There's no gold medal for being right. Can you explain what you mean by that? What I've seen in my career, and it's almost 30 years now, is the rise of people who entertain. Long time ago, when I was like in my 20s, I was like, I would love to be a keynote speaker because I, I, one of my first keynote presentations I attended was Dr. Geller, you know, with Virginia Tech. And I was like, that's amazing. But his was both educational and entertaining. What I found is nowadays people are just really focused on the entertaining. And even though there isn't a mess, something learned, something that challenges me to say, hmm, maybe I can try something new or hmm, maybe I can think of this in a different perspective. It's just, okay, you, I'll, cherry pick and reaffirm what I think I already know. And man, I feel really good about it. So what happens when someone doesn't entertain you, but still they provide you with challenging thought, consider this other thing, they get negative reviews. Because again, I've sat on a lot of committees that review what people say. And so what's really good for you, people kind of reject the things that aren't really good for you, but are, you know, sweet, make you feel better. Aren't it's kind of like lucky charms, you know, bowl lucky charms. It's like, you got to (laughs) <laughs> oh boy, that was a bad reference. That might be an old one. I don't even know if they still make those. I apologize, General Mills. Yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> the marshmallow stuff's not good for you, but ooh, you want it. The other stuff is good for you, the grain stuff, but you know, you, you don't like it as much. We go to these conferences and that's an old model. Go and we hear people talk. Some are entertaining. Some are very educational. And like I had said, and we tend to review based on our visceral response you know, to it. Do I agree with what they said? Okay, I'll say they're great. Do I disagree with what they said without entertaining me? Oh, they're horrible. What are we learning? Where are we developing? Where is the point in which we can all get together and really talk things through without having a dominant speaker? We need more facilitators in this field instead of entertainers. And I'm going to say this in a negative connotation, pejoratively. We have shock jocks in our field right now. They get a lot of attention and I'll try and listen to some of it. I'm like, I'm not learning anything. All they're doing is trying to either make fun of somebody or entertain. And what am I gaining from that? How is that improving my practice? How is that giving me ideas that would challenge myself to you know, serve my employees or my charges a little bit better than I did today? So 
I want to get a little bit meta now because you co-created a conference talk about soft skills for safety professionals and and it was entitled Stop Yelling at Me. So which is a great title. So partly I want to ask about the idea of civil discourse and the idea of using conferences. So like what was the impetus for the topic and how did people respond? The impetus for the talk was exactly what I just talked about. It was a team talk with my friend Jill James and we were just kind of putting together ideas and I had said, you know, I'm really disheartened by the level of discourse we're seeing on on LinkedIn. And she's, you know, and I I think the immediate response is with people who are like-minded is to say, you know, get into your own little echo chamber and yeah, it's bad. You know, whatever. But I try to then to search out, you know, what is their background? What are they talking about? And the problem is what I see is somebody will come in with like a um, dissenting idea, but in a in a proper way, a civil way. And they will smash them down. And I know I've gotten in earlier in my career, I got into a few of those, you know, fights too. But and my students would then say, Oh, that person said some really bad things about you. I'm like, so what? You know, you let that stuff roll off. But the idea is that this yelling thing, and through my career, I've dealt with different people who they think they're communicating, but it's communication with a definite form of intimidation. And that's not communication. You're forcing your ideas thoughts, opinions on me, I don't feel comfortable saying anything back, but just to say, I agree. And in the safety field, that's dangerous. We shouldn't be yelling, but I understand why people do it. And so what we have to do is we have to acknowledge, acknowledge the anger, acknowledge the emotion. Yes, sure. But what are we really trying to accomplish here? We need to understand, you know, from the worker's perspective, what happened? I need to understand from the student's perspective, why didn't things go as well? If yelling is how you approach it, you'll never get there ever. And so you really have to understand the bigger picture of what you need to do. What is the real goal here? And so in that presentation, what we do is we talk a little bit about, are you the yeller or are you the, so the person who yelled at? And we had a really interesting group. We actually had a bunch of people who in there were yellers. They want to know why. And it's just some people, that's where you were trained. That's how your communication relation training as a, you know, growing up came from, and maybe you've actually found success in that methodology, which is, seems counterproductive, but it's true. And what we let them know is what you can do is you can actually use, I, years ago, I was trained on something called verbal judo. Have you heard of that? No, but that sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And so by your facial expression, your body language, and how you respond to someone's yelling or what seems to be like they're going to reach a level of violence is that what you try to do is turn whatever the violence and yelling in into talking into the statement of ideas and thoughts and relating to each other it's a lot more difficult to hit somebody when they're trying to understand you and they're trying to help you do you see what i mean and we talked about breathing exercises we talked about when you need to walk away from an interaction because you can tell it's not going anywhere at that moment we talked about, you know, if you are happen to be a hothead, that there are points in which you can catch yourself and actually recover in the moment and actually move ahead, progress to a resolution. And I give examples in my life that my blood boils. You know, I, I'm using that very, I can turn it into the credible hall, but I've learned to control it. And I've also learned that if I start to respond that way, if I can see it, I do have to remove myself from them, you know, and kind of breathe. And then I can go back and I can apologize. And I can assist and I can re-relate. And what can we do to come to resolution? And 
I know for some people that is an impossible task right now. You know, you're thinking, you know, they're below me. You know, I'm better than them. I'm older than them. No, I'm bigger than them, whatever it might be. But that's not going to get to resolution. You're not, you can't choke and punch someone into understanding each other. Okay. That's really an extreme version, but of course. Yeah, no, I, I understand. And I'm curious though, because you specifically mentioned LinkedIn. This is where a lot of this discourse is happening. Um, one thing that I see happening is, or that we even talked about on the show before, is that someone discovers a new book, a new point of view, a new idea. On the one hand, they can sometimes be a bit evangelical, like this is a new discovery. I'm the first person to ever get this. And that can be a little annoying. On the other hand, people who might have been working in the field for a long time can also be quite brutal in shutting down the kind of enthusiasm with an attitude of superiority based on their experience. Now, obviously, neither of those is ideal, but what's your approach to dealing with someone who has vastly different level of experience, whether they're way more experienced than you or just starting out and just discovering all these ideas? Well, I think what a lot of people are doing is they're reacting in a short amount of time. And instead of being inquisitive to learn more about what the the topic is or in what context they're making that expression is to get to know the person, you know, because I mean, friends can argue, but in a civil way, strangers who are in the same field, someone who's been in the field a lot longer and maybe had, had published something before, or they've been extremely busy. And they've traveled on the path and they're getting closer to the point of understanding that when somebody speaks up on something that they had thought 10, 15 years ago, they may think, well, I just got to crush them, that it's wrong. I was there. It's not right. They're on the same path you were on. It's just, it's going to take them 15 more years and they're enthusiastic. Don't crush that. Reach out to them and say, that's interesting where you are. And just maybe what you can do is just try to understand where they are and how they're applying it and appreciate that they had the enthusiasm to step up and share what their thoughts are. But with the the idea of maybe being a mentor or a peer reviewer to let them know that I read it and I thought this 20 years ago, but this is the next step for you. That's where we need to be, you know, because then it's not the sharing of things. But just because you followed up the path doesn't mean you caught everything along the way. That I think sometimes what we need to do is appreciate that not only the th- enthusiasm, but maybe some of what their viewpoints are and think back to when we were at that point and where we, did we have that level of enthusiasm? If not, why not? What experience did they have that you didn't have? What resources did, have, are they accessing and using that weren't available 15, 20 years ago? So we can learn from it too. And I am finding that the older we get, the quicker we are to just kind of wave things off as, oh, you're too young. You don't know. And to get angry. And I hope, <laughs> I hope I'm not that person. Cause I, I visualize, you know, the old guy, get off my lawn. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I guess what it sometimes sounds like when they're like, oh, you're not wrong. There's not evidence for that. They're just like, get off my lawn. It's like, come on, man. It's, <laughs> they're just picking up the apples that fell on the ground. Well, and there's so no argument against someone who says, well, I just know because I have X number of years more experience than you, and you just don't know. I mean, there's no way to kind of even the playing field in the discourse there because you're never going to magically have 20 more years experience in the confines of the conversation. Right. And that goes back to what I'd said before. If you are truly a scientist, you've adopted this idea of what I don't know, I don't know. 
allow yourself some time to reflect on what other people are saying and then come back with something more gently. Again, don't yell. <laughs> and we seem to do a lot of yelling, you know, and it doesn't seem like you're yelling, but you're, if you start out your response in a condescending way, you may as well be yelling. So what I was wanting to ask about is there are a lot of, I don't know if I should call them theories, philosophies, points of view. There's new view human and operate and organizational performance, there's safety one, safety two, command and control. There's all these labels. Do you feel like sometimes as you get older that that things, ideas are maybe coming back to the fore that have already existed, but under some other guise, like maybe they're rediscovered or remarketed, or I'm not sure. Do you sometimes get the idea that the younger people are saying, this is a great new idea and older people are saying, no, it's not. But in fact, they actually agree when it comes down to it, when you get past the labels and everything. Well, yeah, of course. I do see that. And <laughs> again, it's the path. The higher you get on the path, the more viewpoint you have. And then you kind of understand things a little bit more. The, all these ideas, sure. They Here's what I want to wanted just say a disclaimer quick. I don't think people are taking other people's ideas, claiming they're their own by repackaging it. I don't think there's anything going on. And I, you didn't intend that, but I want the listeners to understand we're not. that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is they have a discovery. They've experienced something on their path that maybe it was an epiphany for them. They're like, I have to share people. And the easiest way to do that is to provide it with a new title or label so they can differentiate it from the other things. Well, the people who have been through that area, it's like, yeah, you know, we called it this, you call it that. It's not the same, but there's no reason to put it down. It's new to them and it helps them understand. Can we then look back at our past and our experiences and relate to how we felt when we discovered what it was called back then? And that's okay. And here's the thing too. Maybe there is something additional there. Maybe there is... But, or maybe there's something missing from the one we thought. No, we should reach out to them and add to it. So it, but you're right. It's, I see too much of this immediate rejection. And I really think that if these are true scholars, that what they should be doing is attempting to contribute positively to the body of knowledge versus attempting to chop things off just because it's just, you know, kind of something similar they knew, different name. How can we really progress and grow? If what we're doing is, you know, shutting down every new idea that comes along, you know, pretty soon people are going to be afraid to share new ideas or share their experiences. And let's bring it down to our practice now. If workers come to us with ideas and we're just putting them down, that won't work. That's too expensive. They're going to stop bringing the ideas. If you really practice safety, you'll know how important what I just said is. If you are quieting people, even if they have more of a dissenting viewpoint, you're going to miss something. You're not going to understand the full picture of what's going on. Yeah. And I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking when you mentioned safety as a team sport, it's a little sad, a little disappointing that, you know, people are, I'm right, you're right, you're wrong, I'm right, all this kind of thing. When in the end, the goal is actually quite noble. It's to keep people safe and not even just safe, but well. So do you win? <laughs> There's this discussion about like, which is more important, the relationship or being right? Wow. Okay. You just caught me off guard. All right. Is it better to be right or is it better to have the relationship? I say it's better to have the relationship. And I'm, I'm going to refer to a story here really quick. 
that, um, you know, as safety professionals, when we're, you know, especially when we're starting out, we have to present ideas. And if we can convince someone of our idea, then what we want them to do is invest in it. And then we'll take it to the work environment and see if it works. But sometimes managers will not accept or buy into an idea unless it comes from them or one of their trusted few. And so here's what I did with my youth. My boss was like, no, you know, she won't give you the money. I'm like, let me try. And I kind of did a story approach to things and kind of talked about the issue so that she understood it. I had some open-ended questions. And when it got down to, you know what we should do? And she blurted out the answer, the thing that I was going to ask for, she funded it. I came back to my boss. I'm like, we got the money. She's like, how the hell did you do that? And I said, because she said it, not me. And so sometimes that's what we have to do. We don't always have to win. We don't always have to be the best and the most knowledgeable. But if we can help others share their best knowledge and for them to feel more confident in what they're doing so they can, if something doesn't work, they're just like, oh, it's the end of the world. But they try to learn from it and go out. That's what's important. That's what we need to be doing. And that's what I think the further you get into your career, the more you understand that, that you're not just trying to look out to say, I'm the best but you're trying to lift up everybody around you. And I know a lot of people probably think, oh, he's talking, you know, like Peter Drucker type stuff and leadership stuff. Exactly. It's all aligned. Isn't it interesting that we would experience something here and somebody else in a different sort of field? It's kind of the same thing. Good. Okay. So there must be something positive about that if in their application, it works for them and our application, it works for us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's about taking credit, right? Like getting older and being okay with not always getting the credit, which is not to say that credit shouldn't generally be given for ideas, but sometimes if the goal is truly to keep the worker safe, then does it matter if you've convinced your manager that that it was his or her idea? You're exactly right. I mean, you're talking ego. You know, people need to feed that ego. And like I said today, I got, you know, a comment from a worker, thank you for doing what you're doing. That's all I need. And that's sort of the intrinsic value or rewards. And we could talk to McGregor and all that, you know, Maslow's hierarchy and all the X and Ys and stuff. But it really comes down to how do you feel? I think some people have lived a life in which they need external recognition to feel good about themselves. And that's too bad. Work on it. Work on yourself. Only you can make you feel good. If you rely too much on other, you're never really, it's a void that can't be filled. Learn to appreciate what you have. Really try to impact people, you know, affect their lives. It's great when they come back and say things, you know, oh, this really helped me. But if I enjoy what I'm doing and I'm finding that I'm learning and success from what I'm doing, that's what's most important. That's why some people were, you know, I'm doing this other job. It's stressful, but I'm like, I love it here. I'm able to make a difference, you know, in little ways and in big ways. And my positivity is actually affecting the other people. They're gaining more enjoyment out of the work they do because they see how excited I am when I do my job. We, the safety professional can be that spark, you know, can, can be that influence if they let themselves to be, if they're a grouch and won't listen to anybody, doesn't communicate well, their level of success is very limited, very limited because of how important it is, the relationships, the communication, and also how people feel, you know, and I I was talking about how bad that was before, but, you know, in the work environment, you can make other people feel pretty good about the work they do, you know, that they enjoy it. That's going to go a lot further to not only keeping them safe, making them successful in the work they do, assisting coworkers, all that, doing a little bit extra than what they're assigned to do. All these things as accumulation or additive for an organization will make the organization perform better, which in turn makes it look like you are doing a great job. 
but that's way down the road. It's the things you do every day, the little things that add up over time that really make a difference in this field. Okay, so I'd like to zoom out now a little bit to look at the field as a whole rather than just the individual on the job. So when we spoke last time, you talked about the safety profession as going through its adolescence compared to other professions like law or engineering. And I'm I'm going to quote here, you said, the safety profession is a bit like a teenager. It was rushed. And there were decisions that were made in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s that we just shot forward with it because certain people were really good salespeople. So can you elaborate on that? <laughs> I can totally elaborate on that. So when I was in graduate school, and I mean, people might think, well, what is, what is graduate school? I'm just going to give a quick preference. It's developing a skill set, a discipline to search out and find literature, consume it, summarize it, really identify what you learn, and then just keep adding it on and adding it on, then going back and reflecting on it. So I went back to, you know, I started with Heinrich's work, read from cover to cover. I've got a copy behind me. And then there were a few things here or there. And I, you know, consumed some of the earlier human error stuff because after, you know, the world wars, there was stuff on design and some of the human resource type stuff. And it was my advisor that really forced us to consume these things. There was high involvement management. Um, and then it got into the first or the earliest published research, at least in the U.S. And it was survey work. They were studying the people, you know, the companies that had the lowest injury rates. We all know that that's not a great indication of a program, but they, that's what they built it from. And they built the taxonomy of what is a successful safety program. And my graduate advisor was part of that research group through NIOSH that really built what that is. And from that, safety climate was built. From that, all those other things were built. And what I'm finding is, like for my dissertation, I read one of the papers, and at the end, the authors were pontificating that wouldn't it be interesting if this relationship was actually reversed? I'm like, yeah. So I searched it out, and that's what I found. You know, my dissertation found that the workforce's perception of management commitment to safety is highly predicated on how management responds when they get hurt. With all the other factors that I measured, it was that, that one thing. It collapsed that one thing, and it was actually a stepwise based on the, the different scores that they could give for an injury. So the severity of it, how many times they've been hurt, how long they were off, all that stuff, it boiled down to how did management make me feel? And I also found in my testing that workers shared experiences. So someone didn't actually go through it, but their coworker who they, it, that influenced them too. So I think everybody is aware of, and I don't want to like bash any like people we've stood on the shoulders of, because I really love the work that Heinrich did, Dan Peterson, all that group. But if you really read their interpretation, their assumptions that went into their books, I found that I disagreed with a few of them because of how the training I had received in psychology and sociology departments. It's like, well, I assume that the wind is going to blow this way. I assume people aren't going to be this, you know, if you're to design something, but it's like, well, but now the wind does blow that way and people are that tall. So what they had promoted and now is the basis for newer ideas, the foundation is a little bit fractured. And, but nobody goes back. Nobody really enjoys the whole the wealth of what everybody tried and shared. And even my advisor, one of his findings was, and I, I had asked him about this, he clarified that um, workplaces with great housekeeping had less injuries. And what people interpreted was, well, if you clean up, then people won't trip over things. I said, did you mean that? Or did you mean that workplaces where workers felt 
like they had more responsibility, tended to take better care of their surroundings. Like, oh, exactly what you said. I said, that is not what people are saying. He's like, oh, (laughs) what can I do now? But so I think there are some misinterpretations out there. But I think here's the thing. Some of the newer ideas that are coming up there are attempting to correct some of those uh, misinterpretations. And I think that's where some people are fighting back against it. And also people don't like change and sometimes things are more comfortable, but it would be great if we could almost have a, you know, a time, a renaissance, if you will, in which we would look back at what we think we knew and what we are experiencing now, find the connections, but also understand what isn't the connection. What are we missing? Are we measuring the right things? Are we providing the students in our universities adequate training when it comes to communication, um, relationships, the, the expression of empathy, things like that? Yeah, I think we could do a much better job I think that also for those who are already practicing in the field and have achieved great success, can we create additional levels of testing for them? I wanted to ask you one more question before we kind of wind down at the end of the interview. And that is, what do you see next on the horizon for the profession as a whole? What are you looking forward to? And what challenges do you think might crop up in the next five to 10 years? I do believe that, and I've kind of like in private, and I'll bring it public now, that I really think that the motto for the safety profession is to put OSHA out of business, that we don't need them anymore. And I do, I mean, for years I've been, not not in public, in a public form at my you know, lectern or anything, but in discussions and in my classes, we discuss alternate viewpoints of, you know, what are the real measures? Safety culture isn't a thing that a learning culture was going to be more successful. Safety doesn't drive job satisfaction. Job satisfaction will drive safety, you know, things like that. And, but sharing with them everything that's out there. So I'm, I'm very much a, I don't try to align with one particular model. I try to share them all. And I do think that we are starting to move past what I think for like maybe 30 or 40 years was the way to practice. And here's the thing, at least in the U.S., if you look at the injury rates, and we can't trust those numbers, so let's not say that I'm saying it's gravity, but they've been stagnant. When something is stagnant, what do you have to do? Shake it up. You got to change the way you, yes, that's exactly (laughs) right. And I think people are starting to realize that. And I also think that newer technologies, use of the internet, you know, just a different perspective on what the practice does, especially I think the pandemic kind of heightened the value of safety professionals and have them reporting to higher ups in the organization versus when you report to a lower level, your sphere of control is very limited, especially then also your resources are limited. But what I see is our ability to really understand what are we really here for? What are we trying to do? It's not just eliminate injuries. It's to make the work more successful, reduce the risk as much as possible and hopefully workers can elicit satisfaction from the work they do. I hope that becomes more of the, what do you, what does safety do versus the send people home in the same condition they came in? Because they can come in and act a fool and go home in the same condition they came in. What have we done? It's the things we do. It's the little things we do that add up over time. And if we can express that, you know, I go out and I talk to the workers. I spend some time with the engineers and I help them out. My boss is having a bad day. So I, I talk them through it. You know, These are the things we can do. We can be the positive influence like we're supposed to be versus the, you know, let's just, oh, if long as no one gets hurt, we can have that pizza party. Come on, you guys. Let's 
let's change. But I think I see a lot of change. I see a lot of change in the language. I do see some resistance. And I think it's really interesting that it's so quickly on the ESG approach. I see a lot of people against it. And what they're saying is safety has its place. We've done some environmental stuff. Leave us alone (laughs) with this thing. And, you know, initially I thought, well, you know, we're already there, but you're right. We already have enough on our plate. We do have a lot on our plate. And I think the more we try to pursue this idea of how the things we do every day contribute to worker success, to, you know, leader success and understand, helping them communicate as well. I think we will then really substantiate what our field is. And I think then it can get more of a a structure to the discipline itself versus like what like the original ANSI Z whatever it said that identify problems, fix the problems, train people, build a program. You know, it's sure. But there's so much more to it. And I mean, I am so grateful that I've had this opportunity this year to get back onto the field and practice and just re-experience the things I talk about in class and how, boy, I would never say that in class again. And, oh, I'm going to bring in this case study that I just worked on because, wow, something really caught me off guard, but I was able to, you know, roll it. That's where students can go. I get it. That not everything is perfect that not everything is practiced by rule of thumb, that it is a, each situation, each workplace is different. And you get to just go in there with the skills you have, and then just try to do better than you did yesterday. And what I mean is every year, you should be getting better against yourself. We shouldn't be comparing ourselves to the, you know, the company across the street or another place with the same name, because completely different management, completely different workers, probably different technology, probably different deadlines. This stuff doesn't transfer. It's got to be specific to the needs of that organization. And I'm not going to use the term culture because there's so <laughs> many other things, you know. If you could go back and maybe you actually have this unique opportunity to do this because you teach, if you could go back to the beginning of your safety career and give yourself one piece of advice. Oh my God. Because you, I mean, your whole job is giving lots of advice in a sense. Right. But if you could give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Okay. So this is going to be a little bit of a a touchstone moment for you or for the listeners that when I first started, I was really excited. I had the enthusiasm and I wanted to go present. I wanted to shout it from the rooftops. I learned very quickly from you know the more experienced people, like, shut up, kid. You just got here. And I did, I took, you know, I licked my wounds or whatever, but they were right. Some of my mentees I've reached out to like, oh, I want to write a book. Oh, I want to go speak. Take your time, get out there, learn things, understand the experience. The best thing you can do now is keep a journal and reflect on what you're doing. Show a personal improvement, develop your skills and knowledge and your value and be able to express that to keep growing your career. At some point, you'll be ready. And you'll know it because you probably won't care anymore. It's like the point you don't care anymore about being loud. That's when you should speak. That's probably when you should start speaking up. <laughs> exactly. But that's the advice I would have given myself. It had been like, you know what? You are going to love these first five years. Enjoy it. Take notes. I did a little bit of that, but I wish I would have focused more on learning and development versus I want to go present because I think I'm funny. I probably misinform people. I'll be honest right now. I apologize to anybody who heard me speak when I was 23. I didn't know what I was talking about. But then again, I shouldn't have been your sole source of information either. And I did, you know, at least try to be right when it came to like an OSHA standard and how we were inspected because I had the paperwork. But I didn't really tell you how to fix anything. I didn't educate anybody. I entertained. I was young, so I had the ego. (laughs) Exactly. You were 23. I don't think uh, any of us were uh, fully developed 
<laughs> 23. Mm-hmm. Right. Are there resources that you would recommend to people like websites or books or that you think listeners could learn a little bit more about some of the stuff you've been talking about? Here's the thing. Everybody's on a different along that yes. path. And so they need different resources. I am a buffet learner. I will go to LinkedIn and I'll track some things. I've actually printed off a few papers that people have posted on there. I go to different conferences. So I participate in National Safety Council State, a local safety chapter. I go to their meetings so I can hear what they have to say because a lot of them are non-safety professionals. It's ancillary to their work. I go to state things. I participate pretty heavily with American Society of Safety Professionals. And they've got, I mean, that's like a fire hose of information, but it's sort of the, and this is going to sound very cliche, but it's the side conversations I have when I go to like networking events or social events Mm -hmm. that I get the most input because then I'm, I'm having a beer and I'm sitting next to somebody and something comes up, something we've read or something we've experienced and we can go back and forth. And there's a mutual respect which really comes back to what we originally were talking about, you know, that there needs to be more of a civil discourse. I think we just need to start being more civil to each other. You know, as far as resources, just start going to events, whether it's NFC. And I know that Safeopedia, I'm not trying to like, you know, promote anybody, but they're doing some new stuff too. And that's completely virtual. There are podcasts, a lot of them, you know, this one here is excellent, by the way. The last speaker you had, I'm jealous. He wrote a book on things that I've been teaching in class that I haven't published yet. So it's like, I hope he doesn't think I stole from him, but that was awesome. And I'm going to bring it in because he's, he's already said it, but there's great things in Australia. There's great things in Canada. There's great things in the UK. It's consume, consume, consume without prejudice. And don't yell at people for bringing up ideas that you already had. That's what people need to do. I think learning to be more civil, learning not to respond negatively would be a big help for everybody because you start online, bring it home, do it that way too. I'm, I'm finding and I'm teaching my students that being empathetic, being a good communicator, showing people that you care, saying their name, asking them how they're doing, things are better. You just made their day too, you know? And it's just, there's so much more we could do. And I just wish more people would do it. And I'm not just saying that because we're in the US and we all hate each other, but worldwide, I just think more people, especially online, as we meet online, yes, we got to yeah. be better to each other. We can be better than this. I would like it if the safety field would be sort of a, a good example for other disciplines that we can do that. Because, I mean, we we do have a tough job. You know, we're trying to keep people from getting killed or seriously hurt. And one of the things that affects me the most is someone who maybe goes to a job they don't necessarily like but they do it every day as best they can because they're providing for their, themselves and their family and they get a disability or killed in attempting to do that. That hurts me. That really does. I mean, if someone gets hurt, you know, falling out of the sky, well, they wanted to do that. You know, no one's forcing them. Okay. I'm getting way morbid here, but I'm just saying that we do have a very big responsibility and it's not something we can do alone. We do not know everything by the way. Nobody does. All we can do is attempt to pursue a better understanding of things a little at a time. So long story short, okay, I'm going to, oh, he's been talking for 20 minutes. Where do I go for resources? I go everywhere. And I, but I think the most important is let's talk to each other instead of just criticizing or attending somebody talking at me. Let's talk together. I think I wish there was more meetings now in safety. I would love this, by the way. So I'm giving ideas to NSC, ASSP, the Canadian group. Instead of going with a group of speakers, how about we go with to a group of facilitators and let's talk about what we're experiencing, what we think we know, 
identify where the gaps are. We can hand that off to the researchers and they can pursue it because they want to know that stuff too. We can tell the government we need to fund things to understand something better. Like I said, I think we're a bunch of teenagers right now, and I think we can do better. Well, for those who want to do better, for those who want to reach out to you, where can they find you on the web? I've got almost all of my lectures on YouTube. You can find me there if you think this is kind of entertaining. You'd probably really catch... I think I'm hilarious. But otherwise, I mean, yeah, LinkedIn, Facebook, I'm out and about, you know, ASSP, Wisconsin Safety Council, if you're near me, or just reach out. I think a lot of people reach out through LinkedIn. Yeah. Because I I try to share jobs. I try to help people, even ones I don't know. And so if you want to reach out to me, that'd be great. Especially if any of you are like, you know what? He's, if you're like, yes, this is what's been missing. Let's start. Let's figure it out. Let's have this be the starting point, then maybe we get a growing group of people who are willing to talk and be civil and to support people because you can't change everybody. There's going to be people yelling at people. There's going to be people being negative. We're not going to get rid of that. But if we can be a bigger influence of of support and really pursuing an understanding and really understanding it's personal growth, not, hey, pay attention to me, that would be better. So yeah, just reach out to me through LinkedIn or, I mean, you can Google me. I'm all over the place. You know, professors have to be. (laughs) That's what we do. (laughs) All right. Well, that is the end of our show. Thanks so much for joining me, Todd. Thank you. That was fun. And thanks to our listeners and those who post on our social media channels and the Safety Labs by Slice team, keeping the discourse civil since 2022. Bye for now. Safety Labs is created by Slice, the only safety knife on the market with a finger-friendly blade. Find us at sliceproducts.com. Until next time, stay safe.